0: Good morning, witches and friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. Today I have for you a bonus episode all about star magic, which is pretty much why this podcast exists anyway. If this is your first time here, this is a space where we learn together. I'm a bit of a history nerd who spent five years at university studying the intellectual history of early modern Europe. So I read the old book, and uh, I now put out these episodes to share the knowledge in a way that is hopefully more relevant and fun so many centuries later. And past seasons, we've also had a lot of guests sharing the tools to help us regulate our nervous system, heal our past wounds, connect with our intuition and our magic, so that we can take it from being just an intellectual pastime to a way of life. Since the topic today is meteor showers, it's coming with the usual love and apologies to any listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. You are as valued as everyone else, but I get my information from the Observatory in Greenwich, and the myths I draw from are from people that have lived under the same sky as me. So, before I jump into the specifics, I wanted to recap my philosophy around star magic and why i talk about meteor showers for any listeners that have joined the community and haven't heard it yet historically stars have always had a huge cultural significance in terms of guidance from the mundane sense of direction for travellers to astrology and the complex theories of power behind medieval and renaissance magic that we talk about in this show. Of the major star events of each year, like the alignment of the Lion's Gate portal, for example, meteor showers are a powerful but underutilized one. Even if meteors symbolize the connection we have with the spiritual realm, they are quite literally celestial debris that fall onto Earth. They have always been looked upon as special signs. I mentioned in the episode on Star Magic in Season 1 that many events of historical significance took place around the passage of comets, which is where the debris originate for most of the showers that we get. From an alchemical point of view, meteors are also rocky objects that burn into the Earth's atmosphere, so that's all the elements at play We have Air and water vapors in the atmosphere, then earth in the piece of the comet or asteroid itself, and fire in the reaction of the elements. And because they happen when crossing the space assigned to specific constellations, they come with myth and deity attached. But you could just as easily connect to the energy of them in that pure elemental form. But. The rest of the episode will be digging into the lore, because that's my zone of genius. And this is an inclusive space, so you can invest as much or as little belief in the stories as it appears to you. So now, for the main topic. Over December and January, we will have the Geminids, Orseds, and Quarantids. The Geminids are going to be active between the 4th and the 20th of December, with their peak on the 14th and 15th. The predicted hourly rate is 150 meters, and there will be plenty of bright meteors with few trains. They find their origin in a 3200 Phaeton object, which is thought to be a Palladian asteroid, so they are one of the two families that do not originate from a comet. The radiant, which is the technical term for the point where we perceive them originating from, is in the constellation of Gemini near Castor or Alpha Geminorum, the second brightest object in the constellation, which is a multiple star system made up of six individual stars. The brightest star in Gemini is, is Pollux or Beta Geminorum. Together, they are the heavenly twins that make up Gemini as we know it, the probable sons of Zeus and Leda, who was an Anatolian princess and later the queen of Sparta. Her own mother is uncertain in the mythology, with at least five or six alternative genealogies. But what we know by her husband, King Tyndarus, she was the mother of Eleanor Troy, Clytemnestra, Timandra Phoebe and Philonoë. And the twins were conceived of a different egg and of a different father on the same night as Helen and Clytemnestra, with kind of different variation depending on the myth of who's the twin of whom, and also different variation of which child had divine blood. The only one of the four children who is consistently seen as immortal is Pollux. Although in the Iliad, they are both considered mortal and there are references to a lost poem where the immortality was given by Zeus after their death, rather than at conception. Either way, the classical sources paint the twins as being regarded as helpers of mankind and held to be patrons of travelers and of sailors in particular, who invoke them to seek favorable winds. Also had roles as horsemen and boxers, which led them to being seen as the patrons of athletes and athletic contests. Contests, sorry. Uh, They intervened at the moment of crisis, aiding those who honoured or trusted them, which, in my opinion, may be why we see Gemini as a sign in the chaotic way we do. But also, the idea of Chaos as something bad could be its own episode, and maybe it will be. So, I actually think they are very good deities. Despite the fact that most of their lore reflects themes of trickery and scheming, but one story uh, beautifully stands out to me, and that is when Pollot, instead of spending time on Mount Olympus on his own, gave half of his immortality to his dying brother Castor, enabling the twins to alternate between Olympus and Hades together. So the ambiguous strength of twins' love for each other predates brothers' conflict by thousands of years. Anyway, a semblance of immortality and death, the twins which are collectively known as the Dioscuri, were said to have been initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries. And the cult It was mostly Scots of War, actually. And that extended outside of Sparta. But its origin gives us an insight now, just not just in the symbol uh, that we associate with the sign, but some of the meaning of Gemini. Because in Sparta, it was a practice of having two kings. Historian Jonathan Hall has covered how it possibly came about in his history of the archaic Greek world. That the too long didn't read version is that the practice ensured the protection and continuation of the line, as Sparta was a warmongering city state. So, in this context, it seemed quite unusual just how inseparable the twins were as princes. Suda thought they'd be trained for the future separation. But maybe we're just missing some context, uh, who can say? What we know for sure is that their cult had them together across the board, whichever country extending throughout the Roman Empire, you will always see the twins represented together. But the Dioscuri are also associated with Santelmus fire, which is an electrical phenomenon that occurs during thunderstorms, when a coronal discharge from a pointed object in a strong electric field creates luminous plasma. So this phenomenon is named after a later patron Saint of Sailor's of Erasmusophormia. And St. Helman's fire would appear to sailors as this glowing ball of light during the t- thunderstorms, and then they would see it as a sign that their guardian was with them. Before Christianity, that would be the Dioscuri and then the saint I just mentioned. So their lore is so varied, and we see it reflected in the multiple association of the sign of Gemini in astrology. Uh, they have no real connection in the myth with the ruler of the sign, who is Mercury or has Hermes in the Greek. However, what stands out to me is just how their duality is seen as their strength. Is of the twins had something they excelled in that the other did not, but that together would bring benefit to the people who called upon them. And I think that's a good attitude with which to approach not just how we work with others, but different parts of ourselves. We don't have to keep things neatly separated into boxes. Nowadays, most of us are sheltered from wars, so their domain as princes of a war in city-state isn't relevant to us. I believe they still offer us wisdom and support in fighting for our own domains, which is ourselves, and our families, chosen or otherwise, or our businesses, if we have one. Our fighting may be more metaphorical than waging a war to rescue our sister, which is the story behind the war at Troy in the Iliad, but we do plan to fight it nonetheless. And as this shower happens towards the time in the modern calendar, when we plan the new year, it seems like a perfect time for spells to lay the groundwork for our goals in 2024. Next, we have the Ursids. They are active over the solstice between the 17th and the 26th of December, with their peak on the 22nd and 23rd. They are a more sparse shower, expected at 10 metres per hour rate, and they are associated with the Comet 8. P. or Tattl's comet. And take their name from their of origin, which is near Cockab or Beta Urse Minoris, the brightest star in the bowl of the Little Dipper per asterism. And asterism is just the technical term for a recognizable pattern of stars within a constellation. So the constellation, you probably guessed it if you didn't know it already, is the Ursa Minor, or Minor with the English pronunciation, or the Little Bear in English altogether. The ancient name of the constellation is Kunosura, which means dog tail, and the origin of this name is unclear, since no dog constellation is actually nearby. Erastocenes of Cyrene is in an um, wrote in a now-lost compendium of astro-mythology, which includes the origin myth of the stars and constellations, uh, called the Catasterismi, uh, made Kynosura the name of an oread nymph described as a nurse of Zeus, who was later honoured by the god with a place in the sky. It's not the first nymph who has had that treatment, uh, if you remember. From past episodes, another explanation connects it instead to the myth of Callisto, with her son Arcas replaced by a dog, being placed in the sky by Zeus. So the real nymphs were mountain nymphs, and in the case of Kinosura connected to Mount Ida in Crete. Her a heroic fee was to hide Zeus one time that Cronos, his father, who ate his own children to prevent them from dethroning him the way that he did to his father Uranus, upon hearing the prophecy that one of them would do so, was visiting the island. So we have another constellation honoring a nymph for Adin Zeus, although the name of the other one escapes me right now. Um, the other possible explanation was that Hera, the jealous wife of the philanderous uh, Zeus, as pretty much all of Greek mythology is his love life, transformed Callisto, who was one of Artemis's followers, um, which was like a married nymph uh, who did take a, a um, chastity vow into a bear, as she was pursued by Zeus under the appearance of so being Artemis herself. And then she became pregnant by him which led to her being expelled from Artemis's circle of nymphs. So, yep, yeah, I'm as confused as everyone about how Ovid thought that that worked out, especially since, if you think about it, Apollodoro suggested it may have been that Zeus seduced her in the guise of Artemis's twin brother Apollo. So clearly everyone else was like, how did lesbian sets get uh, pregnant? But another option, I guess, would be that Zeus overpowered her as himself once she had let her guard down, believing it was Artemis, and realising she wasn't when uh, that was like too late to avoid anything happen. So either way, both of the myths have to do with wild animals in the mountains, specifically bears. Mantida itself is recurrent in Greek mythology, with... Um, also bear, on a shelter in Paris when he had been abandoned to die following the premonition of the fall of Troy, and then the bear saved his life until shepherd took him in. Uh, the Italian project L'Orso la Formica, which translates to the bear and the ant, traces the relationship between humans and bears to a much closer one in the ancient past that we have seen from Roman times onwards, where... Uh, owning bears was a symbol of imperial power So i'm going to drop the link if you're interested in learning more about how to help the conservation of these beautiful species in the appendix which is the focus of their project there are likely uh, like more projects like that for other areas as well but i am not familiar with it Ancient natural histories, like those of Aristotle and Opian, focused on the physical parallels between uh, the bears and humans. The myth of Callisto and her son is not the only ancient text where we see a link to the role of the she bear in childbearing, which, together with the perceived likeness to humans, led them to be a philosophical symbol of the antithesis between man and beast, and between maiden and mother and representing this state between wild and tame that we don't really see with other animals. This, together with Artemis's cult connection, could be a great constellation to work with on themes to do with rewilding, especially for women. In the case of those of you who are parents, or would like to be, or even have reasons for the question if, if that's something you actually want uh, being on your mind, it could be a powerful myth to explore motherhood outside of the sanitized views that we derived from the later ancient civilization and especially after christianity and then our final winter meteor shower is the quadantes whose radiant lies in the constellation bohotis which is translated as either the herdsman or the plowman from the greek word for arts has twenty-nine stars visible with the naked eye including the alleged star-seed home the orange giant arcturus which is the fourth brightest star in the night sky the mythology for this constellation is fairly inconclusive but the shower itself takes place between the twenty-eighth of december and the twelfth of january with its peak on the third and fourth It's a bluish or yellowish white meteors with fine trains and it's expected at a rate of 110 per hour, so it's quite big. The coincidence of the timing with the calendar new year is a beautiful one. In the Odyssey, we see the constellation of Bohutes in a reference for navigation, and it's described as a late setting or slow to set one. According to one version of the origin, it comes from a son of Demeter, Philomenus. A twin brother to Plutus, a plumman who drove the in the Ursa Major or Major in the English pronunciation. Another myth associated with bohotus by Hyginus is that of Icarius, who was schooled as a grape farmer and winemaker by Dionysus. Now, one of the strands of the latter's myth identifies him with Iacchus who was a son and a husband to Demeter, depending on who you asked. And I mean, it wouldn't be the first myth of a son marrying his mother. And we know from the situation with Persephone that she was the OG and they're a hyper-enmeshed mother. This line is commonly attributed to the Eleusinian Mysteries. There's also the similarity of the name to Bacchus, which is the name mostly used in the Roman tradition by teeth of Greek origin. So collectively in the mythology, Dionysus was a god of winemaking, orchards and fruits, vegetation, fertility, festivity, insanity, ritual madness, religious ecstasy and theatre. Since the mysteries were, well, mysteries, that's where we get the idea of mystery as something secret and unknown from, we don't know a lot about what happened in Eleusis during the festivities. However, what we know does support the connection to some extent. It's also possible that such festivities were just a common way to honour the fertility of the earth, as both Demeter and Dionysus were agricultural deities. And I'm definitely going to look at these in more detail at a future date. For now, whichever origin of the name you take, there's enough evidence that the constellation has a link to the celebration of the bounty of the earth and some form or other of carnal pleasures. Quoting from Sir Arthur Pica cambridges The Dramatic Festivals of Athens, which is ironically published by the of- Atzfordian Clarendon Press, uh, quote, The rural Dionysia, or lesser Dionysia, was one of the oldest festivals dedicated to Dionysus, begun in Attica and probably celebrated the uh, cultivation of w- vines. It was held during the winter months of Poseidon, the time surrounding the winter solstice, modern de- December or January. The rural Dionysia centered on a procession during which participants carried phalluses, long loaves of bread, uh, jars of water and wine, as well as other offerings, and young girls carried baskets. The procession was followed by a series of dramatic performances and drama competitions. End quote. Even though the Greek name for bohotes, uh, aksofilas, which means bear watcher. We link the constellation more closely to the myth of Callisto, which was another, st- which has another story attached to it. The collective happenings to me, seem to me to place the quarantines in this broader rural paganism vibe. And the name itself comes from the quadrans Morales, which is the Latin name for an instrument mounted on walls that measures the angles between zero and ninety degrees. Between seventeen ninety five and nineteen twenty two. It was in fact its own separate constellation, one of many that in the 18th century were named after scientific instruments. And that's some interesting lore for the more science-minded among us, if you vibe with this story more than this traditional Greek mythology. And if I read the map correctly, the stars in the Dipper that are involved in the shower itself, which is seen as 50 degrees south of the North Pole, are Iota Theta Kappa and Gamma Bo. Together, they make a a small triangle that is almost like the handle of the plough closer to the Orsa Major than the rest of their own constellation. So while you could link the themes to the themes of Arcturus if you felt inspired to do that, since it is the brightest star in the constellation and so quite relevant, personally, I wouldn't. But in case that's of interest, this is your reminder that Arcturus is one of the Bahinian's fifth stars as well as having lore across multiple world cultures. One, of course, is Azarkas, the son of Callisto, in the myth that we saw earlier today. If you go to the fifth star root, the crystal corresponding to it, you may remember, is Jasper, which is bright red and linked to Aries and Scorpio, and then uh, the root chakra, if you connect two chakras. So, to me, it still circles back to the themes of Dionysus, anyway. And the connection to passion and energy is a good one for ushering in the new year. So if you like crystals, it could be a good time to charge it with extra cosmic juice for your 2024 intentions. I could literally spend all day talking about this, but we have an upcoming season to reserve it for. So I'll keep it simple for today, since I dumped info on three showers already, and I don't want it to be overwhelming. I still have no concrete plans for the release of Season 5, so it's very likely that I will be seeing you at the new moon for the next Star News segment. Please share this podcast with anyone you think will like it and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help the algorithm gods bring it to more future friends if you don't know anyone yet. Or even if you do. Uh, Who doesn't want more friends? Anyway, all the links to connect with me, as well as how to financially support the shows, are in the show notes. It's almost Christmas, and I'm an affiliate for Bookshop.org, where you can get the convenience of buying books online while supporting independent bookstores instead of just Bezos. You can support my mission to share the empowerment of cosmic witchcraft and no extra costs to you. And in truth, that's my favourite way to be supported. Although, if you just want a tip, I will be just as grateful as I am. Also, just as grateful knowing you are tuning in and giving me your time and energy. But I love being able to build a world that fights the monopoly of big corporations and bookshop.org does that. I'm not being paid to say this, but I signed up for the program out of a genuine alignment to their mission. So I'm proud to bring them to your attention this gift-giving season. Until next time. Keep living in wonder.